Well, as we turn to God's Word now, the primary text for our message this morning is Exodus chapter 2, 1 to 22. Uh, This is going to introduce us to the character of Moses and tell us something about Moses' early life. And the primary thing that I want us to take away from what we see in this text about Moses is how Moses, even though he was actually the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he was a prince in the house of the king of Egypt, he nevertheless chose to be identified with the suffering people of God. And in this, we see a type or an image, a foretelling of the greater Savior, Jesus Christ, who was to come. And so Sarah will first come and read for us Exodus 2, 1 to 22, where we see the character of Moses revealed to us in this way. After that, Paul will come and read for us from Acts 7, 20 to 25. Uh, This is the sermon of Stephen, the very first martyr of the Christian church. And in his sermon in the book of Acts, he actually gives a good amount of space to Moses and his own identification with his brothers and how nevertheless his brothers rejected him. And so we'll read part of Stephen's sermon there in Acts chapter 7. After that, Abby will come and read for us Hebrews eleven twenty four to 26. It again makes this point that Moses chose to be identified with his people. And then Jen will come and read for us lastly in Hebrews two sixteen and 17, which reminds us how Christ has come to be identified with us. So let's now hear and be blessed by the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 22. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the trough to water their father's flock. 
The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to her he said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Acts seven twenty to 25. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Hebrews 2, verses 16 and 17. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So last week, as we entered into the book of Exodus, we were introduced to two of the primary characters. The two primary characters we were introduced to last week were the characters of the nation of Israel, or really this time it's before they're even a nation. It's just the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, the sons of Abraham. And now this week, we are being introduced to another major figure in the book of Exodus, and that is the person of Moses. In this chapter, as we just read, we are told how Moses was born, how Moses was saved from the slaughter of the babies that Pharaoh was carrying out at that time, and how ultimately he was raised in Pharaoh's house and came to identify himself with the people of God. And again, I think that the main message that the Lord has for us from this text, from this chapter, is for us to see how Moses himself is a type of the greater Savior, Jesus Christ. And in the same way that Moses, though a prince, identified with the suffering people of God, in that same way, Jesus, though King of kings and Lord of lords, nevertheless chose to come and to identify with us because of his great compassion on us. So this morning, in in this text, I want to try to establish this from Exodus chapter 2 here, see how this is indeed what the Bible teaches and apply this message to our hearts. What is the benefit for us of understanding Christ's compassion upon us and what should our response be to that compassion? So that's where we're going now. The first way that we see Moses indeed identified himself with the people of God is the more obvious way that he chose to go out and see the trouble of his brothers. 
Exodus 2 verse 11 tells us that that happened. It says, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. He went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. Now, the book of Exodus doesn't give us a large backstory to tell us exactly how Moses would know that these were his people, what would lead him to want to bear their burdens. I mean, we see that his own mother was paid to raise him up from infancy. And so we assume that some sort of relationship was carried on. And maybe it was through that means that Moses came to understand his true identity as a Hebrew person and how he went out to see his brothers this one day. But nevertheless, this verse 11, I think, stands as something of a remarkable fact that this man, Moses, would be raised up in all the privilege of Egypt Acts chapter 7 even reminds us in particular that he was educated and trained in all the wisdom of Egypt. We're told at the end of this chapter that these Midianite women who he helped at the well, they thought he was an Egyptian. So Moses apparently had these characteristics and he certainly had this upbringing where he could have been very happy living life as an Egyptian prince. And no doubt he had many advantages there and he was very happy being an Egyptian prince in some regard. And yet, his heart was unsettled within him to simply remain a prince in this house of Pharaoh. And he decided, just seemingly out of the blue, one day, that's how verse 11 starts, one day, he goes out to look on the burden of his people. So what amazing compassion is this? That even though there is nothing that compelled him to go out, nothing that made him go out, nevertheless, in his heart, His heart was drawn in compassion to these people to go out and to look on their burdens. Beloved, I wonder if you ever take opportunity to do something like that. I know that it's so hard for me to think of doing things like this when I can be comfortable in my own home, when I can be comfortable doing the work that I know I'm assigned to do, to just ask the question, well, is there anything else and new I could be doing? Anyone that I don't know that needs help who I could go out and get to know and then help? I mean, that's remarkable level of compassion right there. That someone, even though he's a prince, even though he has all these advantages, would nevertheless go out and choose to say, these are my people, these are my brothers and sisters. I want to look on their burdens and I want to see how I can help them. The New Testament in reflecting on this text especially emphasizes how this is just the compassion of Moses' heart. Acts 7 verse 23 just says it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And as we read in Hebrews 4, 24 and 25, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And so this is the first way that we see that Moses is a a type or a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, that he would have this compassion in his heart to go out to these people that he didn't have to go out to and to have mercy on them, to help them, to identify himself with them. And in a moment, we'll look at how Jesus does that even more fully. But the text reveals to us another way in which Moses is identified with the people. So this first way that he was identified, you could say, is through his willful choice. He chose to go out and he chose to look on their burdens. He chose to rescue his brother Hebrew who was being beat by an Egyptian. And he chose to try and resolve this dispute between another couple brothers. So he willfully went out to try to help his people. 
But there's another way that's maybe a little more difficult to see, but is nevertheless very present here in Exodus chapter 2 that shows us how Moses was identified with the people of God. And this is more of a plan that God has in his sovereignty that we would understand the depth of Moses' identification with the Hebrew people. And again, as I will argue, therefore the depth of Christ's identification with us. This second way that we see that Moses is identified with the people is the way in which all the various narrative components of Moses' life, all the various things that he went through, are themselves a foreshadowing or something that was about to happen to the Israelite people. So Moses goes through one series of events by God's sovereign plan, and then remarkably, by God's providence, the people of Israel go through the very same steps. And I think the purpose of Scripture showing us that Moses had these steps in his life and then Israel has these steps in his life is so, again, we would understand that Moses is identified with this people, that he in some way represents them or in some way one with them, united with them. Now, what are some of these ways that Moses and the people of Israel remarkably overlap? Well, the very first way we see at the beginning of Exodus chapter 2 and at the end of Exodus chapter 1 where we read about all the male babies were to be thrown into the Nile River so that they would die. And sure enough, this is how Moses' life itself begins. His mom rescues him and keeps him hidden for three months, but she realizes she can't hide him anymore. And so he gets cast into the Nile, just as so many of his Hebrew brothers get cast into the Nile. Of course, he lives because his mother builds for him a basket, or more literally, builds an ark, the saving vessel for him. And so he's saved. But Pharaoh sought to destroy Moses by that killing him in the river, just as all the Hebrew male children were going to be killed in the Nile River. And just as in days to come, the Israelite people would be delivered through waters of judgment when the Red Sea is parted, Remember, they go out through the Red Sea, then the Red Sea comes crashing back down, and all the Egyptians die in the Red Sea as it comes crashing back down, and so this Red Sea is waters of judgment. Well, in the same way, Moses passes through these waters of judgment in the Nile River, where all these Hebrews are being killed, and he is nevertheless rescued, just the way Israel will one day soon be rescued. Next, we see that Moses' family is enriched while he is in Pharaoh's house. Again, we're told that the daughter of Pharaoh offered to pay a Hebrew midwife in order to help raise Moses, a Hebrew wet nurse. And of course, that nurse is Moses' own mother. And so Moses' family is enriched, is paid by Pharaoh. And so Moses' mother gets paid to take care of her own son. And again, later in the narrative, we learn that before Israel leaves Egypt, they get paid lots of money by the Egyptians because the Egyptians are so afraid of the people of Israel and just want them to go that they enrich them, they give them money. And so Moses and his own family is again this picture of the broader people of Israel. We also learn that Moses is a priest. One of the first things we read in Exodus 2 is he was of the house of Levi. Now, of course, the Hebrew priesthood had not been established yet, and yet when Moses establishes it, we learn that it is the house of Levi that is to be the house of priests, the tribe of priests, and that is Moses' own house. He is a priest to God. 
And yet he is not just a priest, he is actually a royal priest because he is a prince in Pharaoh's house. He is in royalty. And in the same way, later on in the book of Exodus, when God will call out the people of Egypt, he will call them to be a nation of priests, royal priests. That's Exodus 19.6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so again, Moses in his person is a small picture of the broader people of Israel and their own calling. Of course, after killing the Egyptian, then Moses has to flee out from Egypt because Pharaoh is seeking to kill him. And again, the people of Israel will very soon have to flee out of Egypt as Pharaoh is seeking to kill them. When Pharaoh flees Egypt, he meets Jethro in the land of Midian. That's what we read about starting in verse 16. And the nation of Israel, after they get out of Egypt, the first thing that happens is they meet Jethro in the land of Midian. Moses is even married to Jethro's daughter in the land of Midian. And in the same way, the people of Israel will be married in covenant to Yahweh in the land of Midian at Mount Sinai. Then the people of Israel will spend 40 years in the wilderness, just as Moses spent 40 years in exile out of Egypt. And then lastly, Israel will meet God at Mount Sinai. And in the next chapter, we'll see Moses himself meeting God at Mount Sinai at the burning bush. And so in all these ways, Scripture is is just giving us, again, what we would call maybe remarkable providences or what amazing happenstances. But of course, we know they're not happenstance at all. These are all things that are designed by the wisdom and providence of God to show us that Moses is identifying with his people. That in some way, the life that Moses lives, the experiences that he goes through, he is bearing the nation of Israel in his person. The theological word for this is recapitulation. But other words we could use are identification with, or maybe we could use the word solidarity. That's a very popular word in our culture today. Just the amazing level of solidarity that Moses has with the people of Israel that he would go through, that he would experience all the things that they themselves were about to experience. He, and of course on a small and personal scale, and they on this national scale. And so these are the two ways that Moses identifies with the people of Egypt, or sorry, with the the Hebrew people. He identifies with them first by his conscious choice, by going out to them and striving to rescue them, but then he also is identified with them by God in the way that the events of his life unfold in the same way that the events of the nation of Israel are going to unfold. Now, what's the benefit of all this information to us? Is this just kind of a historical curiosity that we can be glad to know? Well, of course not. This is the word of God. The word of God always has something to teach us. And in this, in particular, What the Word of God wants to teach us, I believe, is that Moses himself is a type of Christ. And so when we see Moses' own compassionate heart and his desire to be identified with his people, we should see Christ's compassionate heart toward us. And when we see Moses in the events of his life bearing the nation on his back, as it were, we should also remember that Christ was identified with us and he bears us on his back in the life that he goes through. Now, again, I don't think I'm just making this up or just trying to find Jesus. Again, I think Scripture itself makes this parallel between Moses and Christ. 
We see Scripture connecting Moses to Christ again from the very earliest days of Moses' life. Moses, in his birth, was saved out of this death of infants that were being cast into the river. Well, did the same thing happen to Jesus? Remember after Jesus was born and Herod Herod was so afraid of the king that was born in Bethlehem that he had all the males two years old and under slain? And so Jesus, just like Moses, was delivered out of this killing of innocent babies. In the same way that in at least two of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke were given this short narrative of Jesus' own birth and his childhood. In the same way, we're given this short narrative of Moses' birth and childhood. In the same way that Scripture makes clear that Jesus was a king who nevertheless identified with the poor. Here in Exodus, we're told that Moses was a king who identified with the poor. Luke especially makes a big deal of this when when he's talking about the birth of Jesus Christ. He has the angel come and say to Mary that Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And so Jesus, when he comes, he is announced as a king even though he was born into poverty. Also, just looking here at Exodus 2, we see that Moses was rejected by his own people, even when he tried to save them. And again, is this not the story of the Gospels and Acts, that Jesus comes to seek and save his own people, the Jewish people, and what do they do? They reject him. And so the Gospel message goes to the Gentiles. And what do the Gentiles do? The Gentiles receive him. The Gentiles receive Christ in the same way Moses, he goes out and he tries to save his people. And yet his people say, Exodus 2.14, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptians? So they're rejecting Moses. And so he goes out to Midian. He goes to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles embrace him in marriage. So in all these ways, we see Scripture itself linking Moses to Christ. Again, it's not just something that we make up here. It's something that as we look to God's word, we understand the patterns of God's word and we see what God's word is teaching us even here in learning about the infancy and the young adulthood of Moses as he is raised in Pharaoh's house. And we see how in all these ways, Moses really does point us forward to Jesus Christ. And so again, my argument is that all these parallels are too significant, too uh, too amazing to simply be called accidental or happenstance. No, it is all the purpose of God that we would understand his will and what he is seeking to accomplish. So, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us if Moses is a type of Christ and if, as we look at Exodus chapter 2, We see how Moses chooses to have compassion on the Hebrew people, and we see how Moses is identified with the Hebrew people. Well, what it means for us, firstly, is that we need to see the heart of compassion that Christ has on us. We need to see how Christ chose willingly, again, out of no obligation, out of no necessity. He chose simply out of compassion to come to become incarnate as an infant, and to have mercy on us. 
I love the words of Ephesians 2.4. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, this is what sent the Savior to us. The richness of God's mercy and the great love with which he loved us. You see, it was precisely our need, it was precisely our lack that called forth Christ's response. In the same way that Moses, when he went out, he didn't go out to the most privileged Hebrews. He didn't go out to the ones who were in charge of all the others or to the ones who were most important. No, he went out and he saw the one that was being beaten by an Egyptian taskmaster. This is what his heart was drawn to, to the one who was suffering most. And in the same way, the heart of Christ is attracted to us when he sees us suffering. It's what called him forth from heaven that he would come to earth for us. That word that we use to describe Christ, that he is compassionate. We describe God the Father the same way, that he is compassionate. That word, compassion, is a, is a compound word, right? It has two parts, come, meaning with, and passion, meaning suffering. So compassion, meaning he came to suffer with us. He came to experience the very suffering that we ourselves experienced. You see, Christ does not simply look on our suffering as if it's some kind of like book knowledge, right? It's something that he heard about. And he kind of feels badly that this is happening to us. And so that's why he wants to come and help. No, in his incarnation, Hebrews 2, 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In the same way that Moses had to leave the palace in order to be identified with the people of God, in that same way, Christ emptied himself. And he came and took on the form of a servant. He was made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. I love how the book of Hebrews, just a little bit later in Hebrews chapter 4, says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then it gives way to this command. He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. In other words, what should give us confidence to draw near to the throne of grace? The thing that should give us confidence to draw near to the throne of grace is the knowledge that Jesus Christ knows what we experienced firsthand. That that when we are suffering, again, Christ is not this far-off distant God who just kind of hears of our suffering and is debating whether or not he should help us. No, he is someone who has experienced the suffering that we are suffering, and therefore, because he shares our experience, he wants to help us. This is the the logic of the incarnation, the logic of Jesus Christ identifying himself with us. I mean, just to give a, a personal example. I mean, all of us obviously hear of many different types of suffering that are happening around the world. Some types of suffering we can identify with very easily. Other types of suffering perhaps we have a hard time identifying with. So one type of suffering that 
I hear about very often, and when I do hear of it, I feel very badly for these people, and I'm led to pray for them, but it's a suffering that I cannot understand, and that is the suffering of battling cancer. I mean, I, I know that cancer is a terrible thing, and I can imagine how terrible cancer must be, the, the chemotherapy that people must undergo, the radiation that they must undergo. And so I have this kind of mental concept or, or maybe distant approximation of what it must feel like that they are going through this terrible sickness. And yet, when I hear that someone has cancer, I don't have this visceral reaction, knowing that I have experienced the very same thing, and so I know in my depths of my soul what they are going through, and my, my heart of compassion just goes out to them. I, I have not experienced cancer in that way. I, I mean, I thank God that I haven't. I pray that I don't have to. But just consider the difference And the compassion that you will feel towards someone when you have known the very suffering that they know versus when you just kind of hear of their suffering from afar. And so, in contrast, whereas when I hear of someone struggling with cancer, I can imagine that it's very terrible and I do pray for them. But when I hear of a missionary overseas who's going through some kind of culture shock or going through some problem with the government, oh, my heart just immediately goes out to them because I myself went through that very same thing. I know what it feels like. I've been there before. I know exactly how to pray for them because I have experienced that. Beloved, this is the the level of identification, the level of compassion, the level of sympathy that Jesus Christ has on us. He has walked in our shoes. He knows our pain. There is no suffering that you can bring to Jesus. There is no temptation that you can bring to Jesus. There is no problem that you can bring to Jesus where Jesus' heart does not go out to you because he has not experienced that very same thing. Of course, that doesn't mean that Jesus has experienced everything that humans have to experience, but it does mean that Jesus, in his suffering... I think especially in his suffering on the cross where he experienced every kind of human rejection. He experienced every kind of physical pain. He experienced every kind of spiritual turmoil, the abandonment of the Father. He experienced the deepest realities of pain that it is possible for humans to experience. And therefore, whatever kind of pain you have, whether it be physical suffering, whether it be temptation to sin, whether it be physical pain, whether it be torment of any kind, know that those very things are what draw Christ to you because those are the things that remind Christ of all that he experienced in the flesh. Those are the things that remind Christ of the misery that he went through when he came into earth. Beloved, do you realize that Jesus Christ knows the depth of pain and suffering even better than we do? Because we, on some level, take for granted that we are all going to suffer and that the world is a terrible place. And so therefore, whenever we suffer, some part of us thinks, well, this is just the way it is. This is only natural. And in that way, our senses are somewhat dulled to the suffering that we experience and the suffering others experience because we just experience it as a common everyday thing. But beloved, it was not so for Jesus Christ, our great Savior. He exited heaven. He was there when the world was first created, perfect and without sin. He does not think it is normal to suffer. He does not think it makes any sense at all that anyone sins or that anyone suffers. No, what makes sense in his mind is that everything is glorious and right and true. And therefore, any measure of suffering that he experienced 
was like what we experience times 10 because he's all the more shocked by it, all the more stunned by it. And therefore, he can have compassion on us when we suffer. See, Jesus did not have to leave heaven's throne, but he chose to. In having left heaven's throne, he did not have to suffer in the way that he suffered, but he chose to. And so because he chose to identify with us, to be made like us in every respect, therefore we know that we have a merciful and faithful high priest. So that whenever you are suffering in any way, you know that you have a Savior who has firsthand knowledge of that very experience, who wants to draw near to you in the midst of that trial, in the midst of that temptation, and who can help you in your time of need. And so this is the first way in which Christ made this conscious choice to be identified with us and how it should encourage our hearts to draw near to him with boldness, knowing that he understands us and will have mercy on us. And yet, if Christ is Moses in this story, then so often we are like those Hebrew brothers of Moses, who... When Moses came to them and tried to save them, they did not understand that he was trying to save them. No, they spurned his invitation at salvation. And so, so often we are the same way when we experience suffering or trials of some kind instead of understanding that it is in those moments that we are to call out to God and when God most desires to draw near to us because he sees our pain and he knows our pain, instead, we keep God at arm's length and we say, no, God, I'm going to bear this myself. Or we think, no, God, I can't come to you with this temptation because this is unclean. I need to clean myself up first and then maybe I will give you access to my heart, access to my life. And yet what Moses shows us here in these brothers who reject him, even though he is going to save them, is that the right response that his brothers should have is simply to say, thank you, Moses, for coming to rescue me. And that should be our response as well. Whenever we're in the midst of any kind of pain or temptation or wrong or suffering, just go immediately to God and say, thank you, God, for rescuing me. Rather than thinking that we can somehow clean ourselves up, we can somehow save ourselves. Just accept the compassion of God, accept the compassion of Jesus Christ and turn to him immediately and know the strength that he provides. And beloved, if we do that, if we will humble ourselves, not think that we can solve our own problems, win our own salvation, then we will experience that even deeper level of identification that Christ has with us. So in the same way that Moses first chose to be identified with God's people, and yet God also made him one with Christ's people, so to speak, by all those events that overlap, in the same way, God has ordained that Christ bear us on his back and be identified with us in the events that he endured and then the events that we ourselves endure. This was brought to bear most clearly on the cross. You see, on the cross, there was no necessity for Jesus to die. He had not done anything wrong. He was not a criminal by any means. No, the reason why Jesus had to die is because he wanted to walk in our steps. He wanted to identify with us. He wanted to be one with us, to be united with us. 
And that is what he did when he died on the cross. The death that he died, he died owing to our sin. It was our sin that died when he died upon that cross. Not Christ's own sin. And so he walked the road that we walk. And we identify with Christ in that way, first of all, when we come to him in baptism. Romans 6, 3 and 4 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That means baptism is this picture of us undergoing the same thing that Christ himself underwent. When we go under the water, it is like we die in the same way that Jesus died on the cross. Again, Romans 6, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when we come up from the water, then we are joined with Jesus in his resurrection. We have come up from the grave. And so the very pattern of Jesus' life becomes the pattern of our life in baptism. But of course, it doesn't just happen at baptism. It's something that we need to experience day by day, every day. I love the words of Galatians 2.20, where the Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So do you understand how when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, not only Do you then have a sympathetic high priest? But you have someone who walked the path that you have to walk, but he walked it before you. He bore the burden for you. He bore the punishment of sin for you. He rose from the dead for you. So that now you don't have to bear the punishment of sin. Christ has borne it. You bear the cross, but you bear the cross not as God's punishment, but as God's mercy. And then you walk in newness of life. You walk in resurrection life that Jesus has already won for you. And so the story of your life becomes the same as the story of Christ's life. You are united to him. You are made one with him in the same way that Moses was made one, was identified with the people of Israel. And so in these ways, beloved, we praise God for giving us so great a salvation for giving us so excellent a high priest that he would be able to sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses, that all of our temptations and sorrows would not keep God away from us, but would actually bring him near because we are like the children he has who are now suffering and he wants to help us. And not only that, but he would actually identify with those sufferings. And he would rise again from the dead so that we ourselves might know death to all of our sins and all of our sorrows. And one day, we will walk into the new creation and fullness of life because of Jesus who is gone before us. And so as we go through the book of Exodus, I just encourage you to see the Savior Moses as a small picture of the Savior Jesus Christ. Moses who leads this people out of slavery in the land of Egypt and in freedom to worship. And in the same way, Jesus Christ, who leads us out of slavery to sin, out of even the slavery of death and hell itself, and leads us into newness of life. And so with that, would you pray with me now that God would have mercy on us, would show us more of his compassion toward us, so that we might entrust ourselves all the more to him. 
Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your vast mercy and compassion on us. That you, who knew only bliss, who knew only heaven's joys, would nevertheless come and suffer with us and would be identified with us that we ourselves might be rescued from death and from sin. God, I pray that you would empower us to entrust ourselves to you, our faithful high priest, to not run from you, but to lean upon your compassion in every moment. God, would you now hear our prayers as your people on our own behalf and on behalf of the world around us.